Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we have a very special episode for you today. We are interviewing the famous baseball writer and author of two very interesting books, Ben Lindbergh. Yeah, and this is a really interesting conversation we're about to have with Ben. We delve into a lot of details of both using analytics to determine undervalued types of players, but also sort of the new revolution in, in baseball of using data to influence player development. How can we use data and science to change how we think about getting better as baseball players? And Ben is an incredible guest. He has so much knowledge. Uh, when, when he's on, you'll hear more about his, his CV and stuff like that. But we really hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as we did. And with that, uh, let's get you to Ben. Welcome back to uh, this segment of the Alonzo Bet. We are very excited to have Ben Lindbergh on with us as a guest. Ben is written for a lot of different places. He's written for Baseball Prospectus, 538, and Grantland. He is a longtime host of Fangraph's Effectively Wild podcast, and he is currently a staff writer at The Ringer, where you can see his work writing about baseball and other culture. You know, one, one example of this is uh, we saw you recently wrote an ep, uh, article about uh, Better Call Saul overcoming the, the prequel curse, Ben. We're, we're huge Better Call Saul fans. <laughs> yes, so I am too. To uh, yeah. How could you not be? Yeah. I, in my humble opinion, I, I actually rank it above Breaking Bad. But, uh, I do. As well. I know that's a bit of a cult take. Yeah, I, I wouldn't quite go that far yet, yeah. but depending on how the final season goes, I could certainly see it getting yeah. to that point. <laughs> Um, and of course, uh, Ben has also authored two great books, um, one that came out quite recently, that one's The MVP Machine, um, and one that came out a couple of years ago called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Um, if you like reading about baseball, either um, from kind of a storybook perspective, uh, which is the way The Only Rule it has to, Is It Has to Work reads, or from a really analytical perspective, like the MVP machine, um, these are great, great books for you. And both of them bring a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and some really great stories to the forefront that I don't think uh, anybody else has really told before. So um, Sam and I both really enjoyed them, and we would highly, highly recommend them um, to our readers. And with that, Ben, maybe if you can just uh, kind of introduce yourself a little bit. You know, we've kind of gone through your CV. Um, but we couldn't really do it justice. So if you can introduce yourself a little bit, tell us about yourself, um, and maybe let the listeners know how you've been staying busy during this quarantine. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you hit almost everything, at least uh, <laughs> briefly, that I've done. So that was a pretty efficient intro. But yeah, I started out at Baseball Prospectus and eventually became the editor-in-chief there and ran the site for a couple of years before I ended up going to Grantland. And then when Grantland shut down, I went to 538 for a while and then to The Ringer, where I've been almost since it launched. And I've been doing the podcast, as you mentioned, which started at Baseball Prospectus and continues at Fangraphs now, and I've done that with a few different co-hosts. So 
I started out really hoping or trying to work in baseball, and I did a few internships that were intended to get me to that point. So I think my first sports-related job was at the Elias Sports Bureau, just working there for a summer and a couple winters. And I did a couple internships, like with the Nationals and with the Yankees. I spent a couple summers with the Yankees. And I thought initially that I would maybe work for a baseball team, But when I worked for the Yankees and I was in baseball operations for a year or so after college, I sort of realized that I don't know if I was cut out for it or I don't know if my skills really lent themselves to that. I guess I kind of envisioned myself as a stat person and I was sort of a stat person by writer standards, but not really by baseball operations employee standards because I was an English major and I didn't really study math or computer science in an advanced way like a lot of the people I worked with did. And that experience kind of taught me, okay, I'm not really going to stand out as a quant, as a number cruncher if I work for a team. And I kind of missed the public interaction aspect of writing and podcasting, too, because I had gotten a taste of that with Baseball Prospectus before I worked for the Yankees. And then I had to kind of cut off that side of myself and stop writing and not get any interaction with readers or listeners, which I really value. And so I missed that. And I thought, well, maybe I'm more cut out for a media job because I had always envisioned myself as some sort of writer, too. And I thought that my skills and tastes kind of suited writing or editing and I like the lifestyle of being a writer and so I gravitated back toward that and I really haven't regretted it so at a certain point I stopped thinking of working for a baseball team and just started writing about baseball and then eventually branched out into writing about other things as you mentioned which has been helpful lately because I haven't written about baseball at all for I don't know two or three months now because there hasn't been any baseball going on and I've still actually justified my paycheck <laughs> during this time, <laughs> yeah. which uh, which is good and helpful. And I just value the variety, too. You know, as much as I like baseball and writing about baseball, I have other interests, and it's nice for me to keep challenging myself and to keep writing about things that I might not know that much about. You know, it's really fun to write about things from week to week where I'm just learning along with everyone else. I, I wrote about, like, Survivor this past week and this oh, nice. community that tries to predict the outcome of Survivor seasons and I knew nothing about that when I started working on the article and I got to talk to a lot of interesting people and do a lot of interesting reading so that kind of keeps allowing me to grow I think as a writer which has been nice and you know writing for Grantland and The Ringer I've been very lucky at places like that because our editors tend to trust us and let us sort of indulge our passions and those are sites that cover a lot of different areas too so it's not just like baseball prospectus where you're sort of limited to one thing it's in the name of the site sure sure but i guess i mean you did mention that you had this this tension between initially wanting to work more in a baseball front office but then you realize that you also like sort of the the social aspect of writing talking about these things with other people Mm -hmm. and and you sort of did get to combine these two things in in your first book the only rule is it has to work and yeah for those for those who don't know, Ben and uh, his co-host on, on Effectively Wild now, Sam Miller, actually got to take control of an independent uh, minor league baseball team, the Sonoma, the Sonoma Stompers. So could you maybe tell us how that opportunity came to be uh, you know, and what, and what it was like for you? 
Yeah, we got the idea for it during an interview on Effectively Wild when we were talking to a man named Dan Evans, who has been a longtime baseball person. And at the time, he was slated to become the commissioner of a new independent league. And that didn't happen, didn't get off the ground. But when he was talking about looking for owners and looking for people to take over teams, Sam and I just sort of independently and simultaneously thought maybe we could do that. And (laughs) we thought at the time, maybe Baseball Prospectus could take a team and it would be kind of a promotional opportunity and we could write about it. And again, that didn't happen. But once we had the idea, it just never really left our heads. And so a couple of years went by and we didn't really know how to get from that dream to actually making it happen. And then someone reached out to us again, who listened to the podcast and invited Sam to go out to a game. And once he did that, he kind of thought of our old idea and he pitched it to them and I think it was sort of a mutually beneficial relationship, or at least that was the idea, because at that level, this was the Pacific Association, which still exists, and it's one of the lower rungs on the independent baseball ladder. So it's professional baseball. The players are paid. Many of them are former or future minor leaguers, but it's still one of the lowest levels. There aren't a lot of resources there. The team just really didn't have a baseball operations department, so they weren't doing any stat work. They weren't doing any scouting the gm was like cooking hot dogs on the side so they needed the help and they needed the promotion and we hoped that we could come in and actually help them run the baseball team and pick the players and do some scouting and kind of get a taste of these things that we were always writing about from afar but not really getting to test out in person and we sort sold them on the idea and said we'll write a book about this and we got a publisher to go along with it and that was that so the summer of 2015 sam and i sort of took over the team to a certain extent, although part of the book became about the resistance to our control and about trying to persuade people and trying to actually get our way. And uh, for those of you who have not read this book yet, but intend to in the future, um, this is just an amazing, amazing story. Um, And Ben, you gave us a little snapshot there. Um, But I, I do wonder how much different would writing the book have been and how much different would the story have been if some of those initial um, favors that you ask, you know, because you kind of get to the stompers through just a one-off comment and uh, kind of a request from Dan Evans, how much different would it have been if you guys hadn't been able to pull together the pitch FX, the hit FX, and then of course to have bats logging games every day. Yeah, I mean, we were able to bring in a lot of data and technology that they had never had at that level and the players had never seen at that point. And I think that was a large part of the value that we said we were offering is that we were going to bring in these resources that they didn't have. And we set up this volunteer scouting network. A lot of people who had followed our work and listened to our podcast and lived in that area just kind of came out and charted games and we got radar guns and we had laptops and we had video cameras and we had pitch fx and we had all this information if we hadn't had that i don't know that we would have really (laughs) had anything to offer i I think we would have been sort of frauds and everyone would have ignored us because that was what we had we didn't have the backgrounds in baseball we didn't have high level playing experience we couldn't say we played here or we worked there it was all about well we'll have this information that no one else has and we'll use it to make some decisions and 
we did. And at first that was difficult because we had to sort of start this network from scratch. And when we started, we had nothing really. There was almost nothing about past seasons and we had to gather this data and That was very jarring for us because we were used to having all this data on the majors at our disposal, whether it was pitch FX or just retro sheet going back, you know, decades and records of every play and every pitch. And this was just a new environment for all of that. And so it took us like half the season to actually figure out what we were doing and gather all this data and stop having bugs and, you know, stop having the camera run out of batteries in the middle of the game and everything. And then also just have enough information to start drawing conclusions and enough of a sample to actually say something of use. So if we had had none of that, I don't know what we would have done. We would have had a, a really hard time making any kind of data-driven decisions or getting anyone to listen to us. So that was really kind of a a prerequisite. That was part of the understanding. You let us take over the team and we will bring all the stuff that you haven't had access to before. Mm -hmm. And as as you just kind of alluded to there, um, the way that you guys saw yourself, and I'm sure at least to some of the players, the way that some of the players saw you was, Um, kind of being bona fide by the knowledge and by the data. Um, And I think that's very similar to a lot of quant departments around the major league level as well. Um, But then a big theme of the book really becomes you guys, you and Sam, finding your place on this team and, you know, where you belong and how much uh, you should be sticking your hand into the pot and mixing things up. And I wonder, from your experience, um, do you have a feeling as to what level of involvement high-level quants should have in day-to-day decision-making, especially in-game decision-making and lineup construction? Because I think every team in the MLB right now does it a little different. Yeah, I think every team has kind of gone through some version of what we went through on a small scale with the Stompers, where we were trying to figure out how much to intervene and Our pitch for the book was basically like, we'll be calling all the shots and it'll be these number nerds and we'll be coming in and we'll be making the lineups and we'll be signing all the players and we'll be calling all the moves in game and everything. And we didn't really have that level of control. And, you know, we had the backing of the GM and the owner. And I guess we could have come in from day one and just said, our word is law and this is what we're doing. But We had to work with people, I think, to get them on board, and that was pretty challenging because we didn't really want to come in and just be tyrants and dictators and say we are making all the decisions and none of you has any input into any of these decisions because we thought that would alienate people. And also we were just kind of cowards and we didn't feel (laughs) comfortable. I mean, we were so just out of our element there with this baseball team, with all these athletes, you know, in the clubhouse, in the dugout every day. So we did have that presence and that we were around the team and had a level of access that we certainly wouldn't as writers or, you know, that a lot of people would even working for teams. But we kind of had to navigate exactly how much we wanted to do and, and when we wanted to intervene and when we thought those battles were worth fighting. So I think we probably could have been a little more assertive than we were because we kind of hung back at first and I think that got us in some trouble because the manager got used to having that latitude and you know we didn't come in on day one and say this is what the lineup for opening day is like this is the opening day starter we kind of delegated on some of that stuff and so once we were ready to start 
making those decisions there was already a history of us not doing that and i think it was kind of difficult to overcome that but if we had come in on day one and said well we know everything and here's what we're going to do i think that probably would have turned a lot of people off and they would have been even more suspicious of us and even more resistant to what we wanted to do so We did kind of have to just prove that we had something to offer, you know, because these players and the few manager or coach type people that we had, they didn't know anything about us or our work. And so they weren't particularly impressed by our resumes. And we couldn't just come in and say, we're Ben and Sam and we host this podcast and write for Baseball Prospectus. So that qualifies us to run this team. And we had to justify that, I think, through the information that we were able to offer through the insights that we were able to give the team, and we kind of proved that we deserved a space there. So I think as time has gone on in baseball, the quant-type people, the baseball operations department, has had more and more say in in game decisions and in personal personnel decisions. That's like a decades-long trend in baseball, but particularly in the last 10 years or so. I think if you're a manager now, you're expected to work very closely with the people upstairs mm-hmm. and I think generally that benefits the team. I think you want that information. And at the same time, you have to be wary of the fact that the manager is still the leader and is still trying to keep the players in line. And so if there is a perception that the manager is not making any decisions and has no autonomy, then maybe that kind of undercuts their authority, which is something that we went through with the stoppers too, where we worked something out at least in the second half of the season where (laughs) instead of just in the middle of a game saying, let's do this, or why did you do that? Or why didn't you do that? We would have those meetings before or after a game so that the manager would at least look like he was calling the shots himself and and to some extent he was and you know we were sort of humble about things we knew that we didn't have all the answers we didn't know everything and that people who had been in the game their whole lives and had more of a traditional baseball background probably did know things that we didn't know and so Ideally, I think it should be kind of a a dialogue and a back and forth and that both sides have something to teach the other. Yeah, so it it must have been like a very surreal experience just to get this opportunity to run the team. Do you have like a favorite tidbit or moment from this? I know one one detail in the book that we found really funny is that, that you guys ended up trading like six donuts for for a third round pick from another team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there were some memorable moments. There was the the moment in the draft before the season started where Sam sort of snuck off with a a player we really wanted to draft, Daniel Baptista, who ended up being our first baseman. And he just sort of spirited him away, which was, I don't know if that was entirely ethical, but it made for a, a good scene in the book. And Yeah, a lot of it really, when I remember it now, is just about like hanging out with the players and the relationship that we had with some of them. And Sean Conroy, one of the players we signed, who ended up being the first publicly, openly gay player in professional baseball, which was not something that we knew when we signed him and not a storyline that we anticipated, but that ended up being one of the most significant parts of the season and finding out about that and and the way that he handled that was really great and you know just for me just like hanging out with him and playing Super Smash Brothers before the game or whatever and just kind of being around a baseball team in a way that I never have been and 
for me, like at that point, having worked in some front offices a little bit and written about the game and followed all of the teams, I had kind of lost any fandom or affiliation with one team that I had ever had by that point. And so I kind of looked at baseball in this intellectual sort of dispassionate way, almost like I loved it, of course, but I wasn't hanging on the result of every pitch the way that I was when I was a kid. And I was rooting for a team and I was a fan and that summer really gave that back to me because I was just so riveted by every play and every pitch because these were players who in many cases we had signed and so we had a personal stake in their success and of course we had the book deal too and we knew that we needed a good story to make the book good and so the stakes were so high we wanted these players and this team to succeed on a personal level but we also wanted it to succeed on a professional level or at least for there to be some drama and an interesting story in the season and so it was pretty intense at the time and anxiety inducing and I was still doing my day job at Grantland that whole summer and we were still doing the podcast on sort of a reduced schedule so it was incredibly hectic and I remember it being just like a sleepless summer but when I look back on it I look back on it fondly because of the relationships that we had and because of just the life that we led in Sonoma which was very unusual for me as a lifelong city kid to actually kind of be in the suburbs and in a house instead of an apartment and my then girlfriend now wife was out there with me and so I, I think of that whole experience very fondly even though at the time it was just constant stress. This book has so much great stuff in it. I think if we were just sitting talking to you, we could pepper you with questions forever. Um, but we wanted to keep this relatively short. So I'm just going to ask you um, one more question. And that is, when you and Sam went out to find players to fill out your roster, you know, you start off with basically nothing and you got to fill a 22-man roster. Um, you come up with all these different, you guys call them spreadsheet guys in the book, guys that you've identified as people that should have been drafted or are either going to perform really well just this year or just at this level. Um, and it seems like at the end of the book, looking back, you hit on a lot of the pitchers, but not so much on the position players. And I'm wondering, do you think that that's something inherent in evaluation um, and statistical uh, kind of projections that you would make for a player? Or was that just lucky? This is a basically zero size sample and you can't draw any conclusions from your guys' experience there. <laughs> Yeah, it could be the latter. It could be that. But I think it may also have been a result of some of the data that we had. Like, we were working with mostly college data. That was sort of our main source of talent because, you know, we really discovered that we were at a disadvantage when it, come to, it came to filling out this roster because the people who had traditionally been running the team they had sort of this network you know they had played elsewhere before they had coached or managed elsewhere before and so if they needed a shortstop they could think oh well I played with this guy a few years ago or I managed this guy a few years ago I'll call him up and see if he's available and that wasn't always great you know sometimes you would be kind of biased by that or you would bring back some guy you had played with before because you liked him and maybe he wasn't all that great but still it gave you a starting point and we just had a blank slate you know because we had no idea who any of the players were at this level obviously we knew major leaguers and minor leaguers but the players available to the Sonoma Stompers we had yeah. no ideas we started from scratch and so 
college seemed like the most fruitful source for us because we had pretty decent data on college performance and we looked for essentially guys who had graduated in the last year or so and had not been drafted and were just available for whatever reason. Generally, they weren't that big or they weren't that athletic or they didn't throw that hard. You know, they just didn't really project as pro prospects or at least as major league prospects. But we thought, well, if you can succeed in Division One, that's not so different from the Pacific Association. And so these guys might be able to help us at least in the short term. And so we got numbers and we had some help and we We got play-by-play data from college schools and we kind of, you know, parsed it and and got the stats we wanted. But I think we ended up with maybe better data for pitchers than we had for hitters because we had like ground ball rates for pitchers. We had strikeout rates. And really, if you have strikeouts and walks, I mean, that's half the battle or maybe more when it comes to projecting pitchers. And so... I think for hitters, we had outcomes, really, but we didn't know anything about how hard they were hitting the ball. You know, we didn't have exit velocities or or anything at that point. Those weren't available at that level. And so you couldn't really tell if someone had had a fluky season. It was maybe tougher to tell. Like, it's hard to fluke your way to a really high strikeout (laughs) rate and a a really low walk rate. But if you're a hitter, you know, you you can have just a, a few balls happen to go over the wall or a few balls happen to bounce correctly and you have a good BABIP and everything and it's I think also like college seasons are not that long you know it's just not that many at bats and so it takes longer I think for some offensive stats to stabilize than it does for pitching stats like you can get a a pretty decent idea of a pitcher's true talent via strikeout rate in a pretty small sample and so I, I think if I were going to point to a real cause as opposed to just small sample and coincidence it would probably be that yeah that's uh, that's a salient point, and it's it's interesting that sort of in the you know in the independent league, you sort of saw yourselves as still being able to to get some advantage by targeting maybe specific player types out of college that were maybe a little undervalued because of their athletic skill sets and stuff like this. But again, you know, at the major league level, these edges are becoming smaller and smaller, and you know, every team knows that on-base percentage is more important than average now and sort of a lot of the gains to be had in the Moneyball era are gone, which right. is, you know, part of the topic of your, of your next book, The MVP Machine, where you talk about how now a lot of the edges to be gained are not necessarily in identifying players that are being undervalued, but in making, in developing your own good players and using data in uh, in player development. So I was wondering you know, what went into into your decision to start writing the MVP machine and sort of how did you go about the, the research process and things like this? Yeah, I mean, that was one of my regrets about the only rule is that we didn't really make players better. That, that was something that we talked about trying to do. But ultimately, it was just sort of a, a moneyball type story of finding players who were already good or at least good for that level, and their skills just weren't recognized. And a couple of the players we signed ended up being, you know, among the best pitchers in the league, and a couple of the pitchers even got signed subsequently by pro teams and, and played in minor league baseball, which was really gratifying. So clearly, we had identified some players who just, you know, their skills were not recognized, but 
at that level, no one was competing with us in that way. You know, it was like flashing back to 20 years earlier in the big leagues or something. And so we were the only team trying to look at those types of numbers in the Pacific Association. And we really wanted to have that aspect of can we actually make players better? Can we help them improve in some way? But it was a short season. We had so few resources and we were just so out of our depths and it took us so long to get up to a basic level of competence that in the end we didn't really get to do that at all. But that did seem to me like sort of the next step in sabermetrics and that became even clearer to me after that year, I think. You know, even by that time, I think that year was the year when Rich Hill resurfaced out of nowhere. And <laughs> sure, and, at, and he's heavily you know, featured in your book. Right, and, you know, that for me was a really eye-opening moment where this 35-year-old guy who'd been bouncing around baseball for a decade or more at that point and had been in the minors and in indie ball and just seemed like he was done, came back and became one of the best pitchers in baseball for a few starts at the end of that season and then really over the subsequent seasons too and wasn't very durable but when he was on the mound he was incredibly effective and it came out that that had been a product of Brian Bannister the former major league pitcher who was working for the Red Sox at that time and identified something about Hill that he had this really high spin pitch he had this really effective curveball and Brian was able to see that because Trackman came around and revealed that in a way that was not previously identifiable and He encouraged Hill to throw this pitch more and throw his pitches in a certain way that really led to more success. And suddenly this guy at an age when most players are nearing the end reached a higher level than he had ever achieved before and made way more money than he had made in his whole career (laughs) up to that point. And that was just like shocking to me. And, you know, there were other stories like that, maybe a little less dramatic, but the J.D. Martinez's Uh and the Josh Donaldson's and the Justin Turner's guys who really at a point in their career when you would have already expected players to be at their peak, these guys just found a, a whole new gear. And it just became clear to me that, No, even when you're in the big leagues, you can get better because I had always thought that if you got to that point, it's so competitive, it's so hard even to reach the major league level that you must have extracted every last bit of performance that you could have out of your talent just to get to that point and to stay there for years. And it turned out that, no, there were guys who just hadn't even been using their skills and suddenly reached a, a far higher level. And, you know, those are the really dramatic, obvious stories, but there are other stories like that that are a little lower profile guys who made it to the majors because they had a similar transformation in the minors and all of these stories just had the common element of new kinds of coaching new kinds of data that were being brought to bear in making players better and it started to seem clear to me that this was the new competitive advantage this was the new phase of sabermetrics was not just finding players who were already good because every team was doing that it it wasn't possible to as they did in moneyball go out and just get someone who had a high on base percentage because the other teams didn't realize that it was good to have a high on base percentage those days were over And now the way that you could get ahead was figuring out how to make players better, how to get more out of their skills, whether it was 
using some new kind of technology that identified something that players were already doing that was really good and you could get them to emphasize that and do it more you know or learn a new pitch or throw a pitch in a different location or throw a certain pitch more often than you had before or if you're a hitter you know revamping your swing and trying to hit the ball in the air instead of trying to hit the ball on the ground there were a lot of ways that baseball players were coached and instructed that really were counterproductive for a lot of players, whether it was just the whole dogma of establish your fastball. You got to throw fastballs all the time. Even if your best pitch is not a fastball, you, you can't throw your breaking ball in this count or that count because, I don't know, no one has ever done that. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense or the way that hitters were taught to swing down on the ball or hit the ball on the ground or not try to hit it in the air or try to pull it. And for a lot of guys, just kind of getting away from those teachings really made them much better or the technology that became available allowed them to refine their skills in a really exciting way and so I think that's been kind of the latest gold rush in baseball and it just seemed to me and my co-author on that book Travis Sochik that that book hadn't been written that story hadn't been told you know here and there in articles it had been touched on but no one had really unified it in a, a book length story and connected it to the history of player development in baseball and that was just a really exciting idea for us and ben that's what i loved about reading the mvp machine is i was able to say that's obviously what derailed my playing career it wasn't being an unathletic <laughs> jewish yeah. kid it was for sure the wrong coaching tactic were applied to. yeah yeah sure I uh, I thought one interesting you know example you gave in that discussion is, is how Brian Bannister sort of identified that Rich Hill wasn't optimizing his talent, and I think that brings up an interesting question, which is that there are two parts of player development. One is ide identifying all this information and data that goes into making players better. In the case of Rich Hill, identifying that he had this elite spin rate that he should be throwing this elite breaking ball more often. Uh, but then there's also the question of actually disseminating that information to the players. And here it's a guy like Brian Bannister, who you identified as a conduit in, in the MVP machine, who's sort of allowing teams to do that. And what I was wondering is, among sort of the more advanced organizations in the MLB versus the organizations that are sort of doing things wrong right now, how much of it do you think is, is an information gap, like having the right information versus a communication gap and the ability to communicate this information to the players in a useful way? Yeah, I think that's most of it, actually, because just about every front office, I mean, every front office has some kind of R&D department, quantitative analysis department. It varies in size. I mean, you have teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Rays that might have dozens of people doing that job and other teams that might just have a handful. But I think there may be diminishing returns there or certainly the gap between having no one and having, say, six people is a lot bigger than the gap between having six people and having even 20 people, I think. And so everyone is looking at players, valuing players in that sort of way with you know varying degrees of sophistication. But I think the bigger gaps really have been translating that information to the field because it's just not all that useful if you have that information, but it's just limited to the front office. I mean, yes, that's helpful for signing players and drafting and, and trading for players, but when it comes to helping players improve, 
if the only people who know these things are sitting upstairs at their computers, then that's not really helping anyone. And, you know, I experienced that a, a little bit when I was with the Yankees back in like 2009, 2010, and we would put together these binders of information for, you know, Joe Girardi and his coaching staff to use. And they just didn't really use them. So we would put together these giant <laughs> books and all this data and, you know, we'd send it downstairs, hopefully before each series. And, you know, maybe they looked at it from time to time, but not really. I, I think there was one case where someone in the front office put a $20 bill in one of these binders just to see if it would still be there <laughs> at the end of the series. And it was <laughs> because, you know, no one had even cracked yeah. the book. And so I think that's the way things worked at the time. And there was really this bottleneck between the front office and the field. And so I think the first teams that really started to crack that got a huge advantage. And the characters like Bannister, who you know gets a, a chapter in the MVP machine and is one of my favorite people to write about and you know talk to for the book, he was really a formative figure with the Red Sox because you know he was the son of a big leaguer and he was just someone who had always been interested in photography and engineering and in numbers and he had in his own career tried to make himself better with the more limited data that was available at the time you know he studied his numbers and he taught himself a cutter and he transitioned into more of a ground ball guy and you know he tried to remake himself and they didn't have Trackman, and they didn't have Rapsodo and they didn't have edgertronic cameras at that time but he did the best he could with that information and then once his career was over and you know he had an injury and he transitioned into the next phase and this new technology came around he really developed this passion for helping players improve and he became this go-between where you know there was always this skepticism I think among the players like some teams have had success just having people without a playing background in that kind of role and traveling with the team and offering numbers but I think that's difficult because there is a natural skepticism if there is someone who's coming in who hasn't walked in your shoes and hasn't worn a uniform players aren't necessarily going to take them at their word from day one they have to kind of earn it as Sam and I did with the Stompers whereas if you're Brian Bannister and you've been around the game your whole life and you've been a big leaguer and you know what that existence is like and players kind of trust you because they know that you've done what they do and so if you're coming to them and saying I have this information that can help you they know it's not coming from someone who just doesn't know what it's like to be a player and so a lot of teams have gone that route and have had that kind of conduit that can be this liaison this communicator this translator between the front office and the field and is sort of just fluent in both of those languages and knows what it's like to be a big leaguer but also has some information in has some interest in the information and, and data and can kind of be at home in, in both of those worlds so I think that's been really productive and now we've started to see teams hire people from non-traditional backgrounds, which has been great in a lot of cases because people who would have had a hard time getting a coaching job before, whether it's, you know, just some guy who hadn't played at a high level or women perhaps who, you know, weren't big leaguers but still have something to offer and, and can improve players. Those people are getting jobs now. It's just much less about where you played than it is about what you know and what your attitude is and whether you can help players. So that translation issue has really been a big part of this movement. Yeah, and one of those guys who's actually like a main character in this book is Kyle Body, 
or Bodie. I don't actually know exactly. Yeah, Bodie. Yeah. Um, and he's a guy who very little baseball background, right? Like kind of came into all of this from a software job, goes to coaching Little League. Um, and for those who don't know, this is the original founder of Driveline, um, which brings in Trevor Bauer, current uh, Reds pitcher and just all around um, interesting character in the game of baseball, let's say. But I'm curious to hear, so Trevor Bauer is obviously so analytical. This is a guy who's legendary for um, going in and using high-speed cameras and a bunch of different technology to craft a new pitch for his arsenal, the, his slider specifically. And in your opinion, Ben, is that the future of players in baseball? Is that how everyone will be? Or are we going to see those guys who we certainly still have now who say, you know, I want some scouting report, but I don't want too much data because if I think too much at the plate or if I think too much at the hill, everything's going to go haywire. Yeah, you still hear that, but I think you hear it a lot less than you used to. And there are fewer players who are just kind of going up there with the whole, you know, see the ball, hit the ball attitude and wanting to keep their heads clear. I mean, certainly you you don't want to be thinking about numbers while you're trying to hit a 95 mile per hour fastball or something. I mean, that's hard enough to do, but there is a level of preparation and work before you step into the batter's box that I think most players have really embraced. And particularly the younger players who are coming up now and are getting exposed to this technology and these ideas in high school or college. I mean, all of these players have grown up in this Moneyball era. So there isn't really that skepticism or that reflexive, you know, I, I don't need this or we didn't use this when I was coming up because at this point, most players, this has been a part of baseball since they were a part of baseball. And so I think they've also seen a lot of the ways that this can benefit players, you know, whether it's their teammates or their opponents. They've seen guys get better going to driveline or some other facility or incorporating these ideas into their game. And they know that they have to keep pace. You know, I think if you're extremely talented, maybe you can still kind of coast on your skills, but that's getting harder and harder to do because even the great players now are using this information and are getting better. So, you know, guys like Mookie Betts and, and, you know, Cody Bellinger, I mean, these guys were already great and top prospects, but they changed things in their swings. They, you know, incorporated some of this information and they reached even higher levels. And so if superstars like that are doing these things, then if you're not a natural superstar, then you really mm-hmm. better be doing these things to keep up. And so I think there's just more awareness of this and more acceptance of this. And there will be less and less resistance as time goes on. And it'll just be an accepted part of the game that as soon as you get into a minor league system, if not earlier, because there are a lot of college programs that are very sophisticated about this stuff, it's just going to be part of the program. You know, you're going to get a a full workup. You're going to be on the cameras. You're going to get a statistical profile. You're going to get data-driven goals and that'll just be part of the program so i i don't think that that will be foreign to many players coming up now or certainly in the next generation and that i think will continue to drive the level of play higher and higher and maybe will emphasize certain things that 
are good for players, good for teams, not necessarily good for spectators. <laughs> I mean, certainly the, the game has changed in ways that not everyone likes, you know, whether it's less base running or less base stealing or less contact or more homers or more strikeouts or whatever it is. That's not really an accident. It's a product of the skills that are being taught and valued these days. And so, you know, barring rule changes, I think those things will continue in that direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you actually mentioned in the book, Ben, that you had a firsthand opportunity to see some of this training working out both at Driveline and with Doug Lotta, who's a um, very prominent character in this book yeah. as well. Um, I imagine it had been some time since your playing days. I know you also took a hack in the <laughs> San Quentin yards in your other book. <laughs> yes. um, but what was it like being able to utilize all that crazy precise expensive and illuminative technology yeah it was pretty eye-opening and and it was fun for me too and you know there is a section of the book where I sort of recount that experience in first person which is the only first person part of the MVP machine that you know it was very different to write the MVP machine and tell the stories of these players and these coaches and everything from a third person perspective whereas in the only rule it was sort of the experience that Sam and I had had personally and we were kind of telling our own experience in chronological order it was more complicated to figure out how to organize the MVP machine and how to tell all of these other people's stories but that was the one part of the book where it was just really my experience and yeah going to driveline and you know getting myself wired up with all this motion capture equipment to throw a pitch or to swing a pitch you know bat sensors and other motion sensors i mean i think it was important just to be able to describe those things as a writer because it's one thing to hear it from a lifelong professional athlete and it's another to experience it myself which i i think helped make it more relatable to our average reader who is not a professional athlete. And so I was able to describe these things from that perspective and to see how it could even make me a little bit better, how it could identify my flaws and how if I wanted to dedicate myself to it, I could probably improve myself, you know, up to a certain point, obviously. But getting to see that information like you know i i knew that i wasn't very good but just being able to get the hard data on how i compared to pro players let's say that was humbling i guess you know not surprising but just to see the gap there but also to see the potential of it you know to put on this k-motion vest which is this motion sensor thing that you you know you put on various parts of your body and it just you know provides this kind of second by second or millisecond by millisecond output of where all of these parts of your body are and how they're operating in tandem as you swing a bat and you can see oh okay well i'm i'm doing this too early you know this should be happening before that or i'm not doing this fast enough so i either need to practice this or maybe i need to get in the gym and work on this specific part of my body that would allow me to do this better and as a player, as an athlete, you can really target those things. You can evaluate those things in a way that you couldn't before. You know, maybe if you had a really perceptive coach and an experienced coach, they could pick up on something that you weren't doing well. But 
a lot of this stuff happens too quickly to sense it or to see it with the naked eye or even just a regular video camera. And we talked to so many players who have tried this equipment themselves and have said, I didn't even realize I was doing this this way. And, you know, if you don't even know what you're doing, then how do you know what you're doing wrong and how do you know how to be better at it? It's just impossible. And so really within the last several years, it has become possible. And I was able to experience that firsthand. It's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting that sort of the the two main characters of of development, I feel like on the pitching side was Kyle Bodie, and then on the hitting side was Doug Lada, and you got to train with both of them. And I thought it was interesting that Bodie sort of has a much more, I think, analytical approach to training than, than Doug Lada did. And I'm wondering if you sort of see this as maybe some inherent difference between the nature of developing pitching, which is a very deliberative act versus the nature of developing hitting, which is a a more reactive act. And if you think that, you know, we could be headed down a way where like these data-driven scientific approaches are helping pitchers more than hitters, and we could reach some sort of untenable balance in the league. Yeah, I think that has been happening, and that's part of why you're seeing the strikeout rate in baseball soar for, what, 13 consecutive seasons or something at this point. It's definitely part of it. You know, pitch FX came around before, at least publicly, we had good data on how hitters hit the ball, and that enabled us to do certain types of analyses that we couldn't really do for hitters. And Every new phase of the technology and and of sabermetrics, I think, has tended to favor the defense first, and then offense kind of has to catch up. So the difference between Doug and Kyle, you know, that may just be personal taste or the fact that they come from different generations. And Doug was a, a coach for years before this technology became available. So that may just be personal preference. But it's also true that pitching just became suffused in all of this data and technology before hitting did. And it was just easier to track what a pitcher was doing or at least what the ball was doing you know you can see how hard is this guy throwing and where is he throwing it and what type of pitch is he throwing and even you know how much it's spinning and all of that was just I think more telling that tells you more about a pitcher than how hard a hitter is hitting the ball tells you about a hitter and we didn't even know that about a hitter for years (laughs) and so I think there was an imbalance but The gap is starting to close now where you are seeing more and more technology that is geared toward hitters, whether it's swing sensors, you know, little devices that go on the end of a bat and can tell you how hard you're swinging the bat and at what angle or some, you know, remote systems, camera systems that can now track mechanics, can track the bat, can track what the hitter is doing or something like the KVS that I mentioned that is just a a sensor attached to your body or a system of sensors that can tell you what you're doing as you're swinging. That stuff, I think, has really made a lot of hitting more transparent than it has been in the past, and so I think there will be greater gains now on the offensive side, and I think you're starting to see that. You know, some of the guys who don't have traditional power hitters builds but have figured out how to hit for power by maybe hitting the ball farther out in front of the plate, trying to pull it instead of going the other way, trying to hit the ball in the air instead of trying to hit it on the ground. All of that has benefited hitters too, and I think you're going to see more and more of that. So 
that is really a big part of what's happening now is the biomechanics and things that can track players' movements. And I think that will help pitchers, certainly, and maybe might help prevent some injuries. But there's also a lot that that can teach hitters, too. Yeah, and uh, I guess one area of, of sort of player skill that didn't get talked about that much in MVP machine was uh, was fielding. Like, are you aware of any specific, more data-driven approaches to, to improving that that are developing? Yeah, fielding's complicated because there are just so many movements that go into it. I mean, certainly there's a role for data when it comes to evaluating fielders and positioning fielders. So we've seen teams get a lot more experimental with that. Like that was something that we did with the Stompers and we were pretty proud of ourselves that we were doing like five-man infields and four-man outfields. And now a lot of major league teams are doing four-man outfields and basing where you put fielders on information on where the ball tends to be hit and how those fielders perform. So that's certainly happening. But when it comes to on the mechanical level, it's just more complicated. There are more motions that go into fielding. You know, it's getting a jump and getting to the ball and then how you field it and how you glove it and how you transfer it and how you throw it. There's just so much there. But I think teams are starting to work on those things. And I think we may mention in the book that at least one team is sort of training high-speed cameras on fielders and trying to break down fielding motions in the way that they've broken down pitching and hitting motions. So we may start to see more of that. You know, maybe there are more efficient movements that you can take in the field that will start to become more common. So I think that could happen or or certainly, you know, maybe there are certain drills that you can do for throwing or or certain ways that you can improve throwing that are better than what has traditionally been done. So I I think there are things that can happen there. It's, It's just a little more complicated. There's more that goes into it. All right, we're uh, we're gonna get you going here in a second, Ben. But that uh, sign off there just made me think of something. If you had high speed cameras and you were trying to make a defensive uh, metric using them, but you needed to train them on somebody's film, what player would you use to train for the perfect defender? <laughs> well, probably Andrew. <laughs> yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if you train a model on the best then maybe that uh, skews things maybe you want to find a perfectly average person (laughs) or something but but yeah if you if you want the best the most impressive you know the most like fundamentally sound i i don't think you could go wrong with simmons who's probably been i mean certainly in the infield but maybe overall probably the most superlative defender of the past several years and yeah that's hard to argue. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the episode. We had a ton of fun uh, going through a bunch of different topics that came out of your two books. Hopefully our listeners liked it too. Um, and hopefully we've done a good job of convincing everyone to go out uh, and buy and read. The only rule is it has to work and MVP machine, both authored by our guest today, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, is there anything uh, you'd like to plug or any exciting news you'd like to tell our listeners that's coming up here? No, I think you kind of covered it. The MVP machine just came out in paperback recently. It has a new afterword. So if you get the paperback version or the Kindle edition, there's some new material there. But otherwise, all my writing's at The Ringer, and I do the podcast at Fangrass, Effectively Wild. So that's where you can find awesome. me. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Ben. We, we had an absolute blast. Yeah, my pleasure. Good talking to you guys. Yeah.
right. Thank you very much uh, for coming today, guys. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Ben. He had some great, great stuff to say. I can't stress this enough. If you're a baseball fan and you like reading about baseball, these are two of my favorite books that I've read in a very, very long time. So please go out, support Ben, and increase your knowledge uh, because these are both fun books to read and um, have a bunch of knowledge in them. So uh, it was great speaking with him. We're going to have a bunch more guests on in the future. Um, but tell them what we got coming up in our next episode, Sam, because yeah. I'm super excited about this. And I know, uh, I know some of you might be upset that you missed out on a stat corner this episode. We decided to sort of devote the whole episode to our interview with Ben. But to make up for that, we're going to come back with a mega stat episode next episode where we will basically be doing an entire breakdown of StatCast data. So we've mentioned StatCast a lot on this podcast but I think we've never really gone into the details of what exactly it is, what exactly are the types of things it can measure. So we're going to do a really big breakdown for that for, you know, so you guys know in the future how to look at StatCast data, how it's going to affect how we think about baseball in the future. And we're really excited about this episode. And folks, this is the future of advanced analytics. This is the future of new statistics. So please come back next episode for a full StatCast breakdown where we're going to teach you the ins and outs of how it's calculated, where it's coming from, and what it's worth. And with that, we're signing off. Thank you very much for joining us. For the Alonzo Bet, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. That's all, folks.